Let's pick up in verse 41. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him in time, in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness, on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Massonites, uh, for the Manassites. Now, we have already seen the plan for these cities of refuge back in the book of Numbers. Here, we're told that Moses sets up the first three, all of them in the territory of the two and a half tribes. This is before Israel has entered into the land, and so these tribes are going to leave their families and their livestock behind, the men will go to war, but in the meantime, they go ahead and set up these cities of refuge. And effectively, what they are is they're a place for someone who unintentionally, notice that it says that in verse 42, unintentionally, without being at enmity uh, with somebody, kills somebody. So a work accident, um, or even a heated argument that starts as a fist fight but gets out of hand and somebody dies accidentally. These were places where they could flee so that vengeance wouldn't be taken. Um, the purpose it serves here in Deuteronomy is not merely historical, but it also provides a solid transition between the first speech of Moses, which we just finished, and the second one, which we start here in verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived in the east beyond the Jordan, from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the, far as the Sea of Arabah, under the slopes of Pigsa, or Pisgah, excuse me. But notice here that as it begins to introduce this new speech of Moses, this one that's going to focus on the law, the statutes, the rules, uh, it sets the same context that we've already had set for us multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy. It does not want us to forget where this is taking place and where in the timeline it is, specifically that it's on the border of God's promises and it's uh, following the victories that they've had of these two kings. And so, it's here, again, that Moses begins to speak. And we'll see as he opens here in chapter 5, he begins by reviewing what we often call the Ten Commandments, what the Jews called the Ten Words, the Decalogos, the Decalogue. And so verse 1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Now, that is an incredibly odd statement for two reasons. First, he says that God made a covenant with us here today, back at Horeb, 
which is strange because at least a portion of Moses' audience wasn't born yet. Remember, this is the new generation of Israel. All of the people over the age of 20, over the course of 40 years, has died off. It's the young ones who are left behind that he speaks to. And so first he says, he says that the Lord made a covenant with you, despite the fact that they were young or maybe even unborn at this time. But he also says the Lord did not make a covenant with our fathers. Now, the reason he's doing this is rhetorical in nature. He's not trying to argue a different history than the book of Exodus. He's trying to point to the fact that the covenant is a today thing, not a yesterday thing, that it's a now thing, not a then thing, that it is for us and not merely our ancestors. And it's worth pointing out that the covenant was given with the agreement that it would be obeyed and then they would enter into the land. And so the original generation had what I guess we could call a false start. But he updates it. He gets their attention. You can imagine what it'd be like to be in his audience and go, wait a minute, what could he possibly mean? He's drawing them in to make a point. Today, you, us. And so he says in verse 4, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. And so he sets up a pretty basic format here. It's one we get right out of the book of Exodus. There's God on the mount speaking. There's Moses, the mediator in between, and then there's the people. As we'll see later tonight, uh, God begins by speaking to the collective congregation of Israel, and they send a delegation and say, this is kind of terrifying. Moses, just let God speak to you and you speak to us. But even here we see that same format of God, Moses, and the people. That's intentional. Moses is building to a point. But he reminds them of that day, and then he reminds them of what was said on those days. Once again, what we call the Ten Commandments. So verse 5, While I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go into the mountain, he said. Now notice, this is where the Decalogue proper begins, and notice it doesn't begin with a command. In fact, when, uh, when this is referred to, these ten commandments as we call them in scripture they're always called either the 10 words or just the words this idea of commandments is clearly built into it we saw even in verse 1 the rules and statutes that I will speak to you but in a broader sense uh, we have to use the phrase the 10 words because it's more than just commands and before God tells them you shall or you shall not he starts by saying I am he starts with self-revelation Okay. So the ethics of Israel are built upon the character of God. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now notice that as, as well. It's not just I am, but I did. Okay. It's both self-revelation, you must be or do because of who I am, but it's also built on their history. I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. It's very helpful for us today reading this Bible to notice the order there. Because every once in a while we assume that in the Old Testament the way that God worked was obey me and I will bring you salvation. But a better way to think about it is that God says to Israel, I have saved you, therefore obey me. 
It's the same pattern that we give in the New Testament. It's the same God who never changes who's speaking here. And so he brought them out before the covenant, before the rules, before they had heard the rules, let alone kept the rules. But because he is the God who brought them out, then he continues. And the very first one given is verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we look at these uh, Ten Commandments and just a few things as we go through them here. First off, they're hard to count. We call them the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, uh, but there's actually some here that are um, multiple commands, all categorically going together. In fact, how you go about numbering them differs in the Christian tradition. So, for example... Not just the Catholic Church, but also Augustine from the third century and Martin Luther himself all split the last command, don't covet your neighbor's wife, that's number nine, don't covet all your neighbor's other stuff, that's number ten, whereas many other Protestant or evangelical traditions tend to see two in the beginning, you'll have no other gods before me, you'll make no idols as one and two, and keep the covet ones together. Um, but the reason why there's any disagreement is because they're not numbered. Okay? They're not listed in a numerical way. Instead, uh, they're stated here. Now, saying that they're not numbered, saying that it can't be listed as ten, doesn't mean it isn't without structure. And there's two very clear aspects of structure in the ten as they're given. The first one has to do with the fact that it begins with God. And then it moves through society as a whole. And so the first three focus on God and then, uh, as we'll see, honor the Sabbath, talks about society as a whole, and then it zooms in and talks about the family, and then it finishes by talking about your neighbor. But it also divides into two pretty basic halves that Jesus himself sums up when he basically says there's really only two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the first half fall into the love the Lord your God category. And it begins with, you will have no other gods before me. The word there for before actually means against or opposite of. It may be well translated as, you will have no rival gods, okay? And so they were to be focused in the covenant on um, the Lord, their Lord, the God who led them out of Israel, or out of Egypt, Yahweh, and they were to not worship anyone else. Now we go on to the second one, and we see that it's also focused on God. Verse 8, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above, or that's on the earth beneath, or that's in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so notice here that this all goes together. It's not merely that they aren't to make anything in the likeness of animals or plants or stars or moons, but they're not to make it for the purpose of worship. That's important. He's not saying here that any form of art like a, a carved giraffe or a zebra is out of place. He's talking specifically about worship. And we know that this is the case because the tabernacle, that remember the plans were given right following the Decalogue, as God said, this is how it's to be. It itself had um, uh, embroidery of cherubim and pomegranates 
and pieces of beauty. The, um, the lampstand was intentionally designed to look like a tree. But the idea here is that they are not to make anything to worship. In fact, specifically, they're not to make any likeness of God. Now, here's something you may not know. The Old Testament is consistent in condemning idolatry and calling uh, Israel not to make any images, right? That's a common word that we use. Did you know that that's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 for the creation of man and woman? In the image of God, he created them. That's the same word, okay? And so it makes sense. There's some sort of correspondence between us and human, us as human beings and who God is. And in the same way, an idol is a, some sort of corresponding object to represent a God. But I also think it tells us something more significant because it's appropriate to ask, what's the big deal? What is the problem with having a representation of God himself? Isn't that something that we could enable us uh, enable us to worship more clearly and more actively as if he's present, and yet he constantly maintains this. Side note, that's completely unique of the religions that make up the ancient Near East, okay? And so there's this, there's this idea here, but what it really comes down to, we find both in the book of Isaiah and in Psalms. In, in both of those places, we find this particular criticism of idolatry, that your idol there it has a mouth, but it can't speak. It has ears, but it can't hear. It has arms, but it doesn't lift you up. In fact, you have to carry your God as you travel. The idea is effectively that this is the living God that we're talking about. And so no physical object can rightly represent. In fact, the subversively, the prophet Isaiah and the psalmist, when they criticize idols, they're not saying your gods are dumb because because you're worshiping a rock, they're saying that rock perfectly represents your false god. Just like this idol can't hear your prayers, neither can your god because your god is not real. Okay? And so the real god, the living god, is not to be represented. And so he says, verse 9, you'll not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We talked about this last week, but once again we see God taking on himself the title jealous. In fact, five times this word is used in connection with God, it's used as his name. For my name is jealousy. Okay. Now we don't generally see a positive uh, in that word jealousy. We only speak of it in a negative, but he means it in Still a severe, but still a positive sense, okay? He means that he is devoted in their relationship to the degree that he wants them only to be in relationship with him. Now, there is a correspondence here between this and the marriage relationship, okay? Israel was to be monotheistic, marriage is to be monogamous, right? And so jealousy makes sense in both characteristics, but I wanted to push something a little bit further. I want you to recognize that God's jealousy tonight is on our behalf, that it's good for us, okay? And it's a pretty simple paradigm. The Bible maintains from beginning to end that God is all about his own glory, and that's a good thing. It's something that he created us to do. That Psalm 19 says that God created the heavens and the earth to glorify him. 
Paul says, whatever we eat or drink or anything we do, do it unto the glory of the Lord. It's repeated over and over again, and we find God pursuing his own glory, not just commanding us to glorify him, but pursuing it on his own. The reason why that is good news is because God really is God. For him to elevate or exalt or to worship or promote anything else would be a form of idolatry. So if you live your life to glorify yourself, we all kind of balk because you're just not that great. You're not that important. You're not the center of things, but God truly is. And so by proclaiming his glory, he's also aligning us to do the thing we were made to do. And so his jealousy here is positive, just like the jealousy of a husband or a wife can be, even if it isn't always Um, But notice what he says here about this jealousy. He continues halfway through verse 9. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Oftentimes we catch the first side of that sentence and it bothers us so much that we don't hear the second side. He says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and even the fourth generation. And we go, wait a minute, that's not fair. But what we have to recognize here is that this is, uh, this is what sometimes theologians call God's passive wrath. It's not that he's angry at a man so he punishes his children. It's that if a man is wicked, his children will pay the consequences. Just... That's the way the universe works. If you are a poor father, your kids will bear the marks of that fathering. If you're a poor mother, your kids will bear the marks. If an entire generation abandons the God of Israel, the next generation starts from zero. Do you see that? But he says, for three or four generations. Now, in contrast, he says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So three or four generations he'll let these things play out. But for those who love and obey, he says he'll show his steadfast love for thousands of generations. Now, just a side note. Written history doesn't record more than a thousand generations of human life, okay? He's being hyperbolic and big intentionally here. The contrast is what we should be getting out of this. Then we get the third commandment here in verse 11. You shall not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, the idea behind this one is any way in which you employ God's name without actually recognizing his person. Okay? So the easy one is what we sometimes call blasphemy. Right? Using God's name as if it were merely a swear word and as if God isn't there, as if he isn't present. But this would also involve, and in fact this is probably the one that would come to mind to the Israelite, swearing in court. Okay, So you swear in court that you're going to tell the truth and you use that as a veil, as a covering for the fact that you're actually lying. Okay, That would be an empty using of God's name. Also, taking the name of Israelite, of the people of God, and yet having no intention to live in light of that fact, would also be included in this. It's any time that you use God's name for your own end instead of his. So, as we see here, the first three all focus on God. And then the fourth one operates as kind of a hinge. It's 
God and people. Notice what I'm saying in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so it begins here with who God is. Honor the Lord's Sabbath but it also draws it out as being a social responsibility, something you don't, not just you get to do, but you must make room so that your children can do it, so that anyone who works in your household, even a visitor who's passing through Israel, it has a social consequence. In fact, this is one of the biggest differences between these 10 words as they're originally given in the book of Exodus and uh, uh, Moses' exposition of them here. If you go back and you read in Exodus chapter 20 when the 10 words are initially given, it's honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy for God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. Therefore, keep the day holy. Here it's, it's honor the Sabbath and keep it holy because you were a slave in Egypt and God brought you out from there. Okay? Now, this brings us into a concept that's helpful to remember. If we look at the 10 words here, because we think of them often as commandments, um, and sometimes we refer to them as the law or the law of Moses, we treat this like it's a legal code, and it's clearly not. It can't function as a legal code. It's too general to be a legal code. In fact, the last one is, you shall not covet your neighbor's things. That's an internal thing. Right? That's something that you may never voice or act upon. That should broaden out your category right there. Now, this is still the foundation of all of the laws of Israel that are to come. In fact, Deuteronomy itself is an exposition of these ten words being applied directly in the lives of people. So I'm not saying they don't change the way we live. I'm just saying that it's not a law code. But if we were to try and look for a comparison of what it is, the Bill of Rights that we have as Americans is not a bad suggestion, but there is one major difference, right? The Bill of Rights lists all of the rights we have as individual Americans, the right to the freedom of speech, the right to bear arms, these types of things. This is like that, but it's, it's negative and not positive. But that negativity does imply a positivity. If we were to call this a Bill of Rights, it would have to be the Bill of Others' Rights. Whereas our Bill of Rights focus on what we deserve and what we're owed, this focuses on what we owe others. And you can see that emphasis right here in the Sabbath. They're not to merely get a break for themselves, to take a rest for themselves. They're to give rest to their own employees, to those who are passing through. Even if they have servants or slaves, they all are to have rest. And it reminds them, for you were a slave in Egypt. In other words, the contrast here, the way we should see the Sabbath is that God gives it as a gift to Israel. A people who had no day offs, had no rest, were under the thumb uh, and slaves of a foreign power. And so God gives them a day of rest and maintains it for them. 
there was a prime minister of England in the 1950s, almost the 1960s, I don't remember his name, but he said that this was the first workers' right movement. This, honor the Sabbath. And we can see how heavy the emphasis is that even their animals are not to be working. Now, while we're here, this brings up a pretty good question to ask, which is for us as Christians today, knowing that this is in the Old Testament, knowing that it was given to Israel, knowing now that Jesus has come and things are different, what part do these 10 words play in our lives? And the Sabbath becomes a very good place to, uh, to answer that question because a lot of times it's an easy answer. It says, well, simply put, nine of the 10 words that we have here are restated in the New Testament for Christians quoted and applied directly to the lives of Christians. Do not lie, do not steal, etc. Okay? Um, have no other gods before me, those types of things. But the Sabbath is not. In fact, even more importantly, listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul speaking here says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so he looks at the holidays of Israel, including the Sabbath celebration, and he says these were only a picture of what God was going to do. Now, the author of Hebrews does something similar. He points to the fact that Christ is our Sabbath, that Christ is our rest. And so the easy answer is then, well, nine of them are restated for the church. The Sabbath was ceremonial in nature. It was a mark of the covenant given to Israel, and therefore we no longer have to observe it. However, I would say things aren't that simple. And the reason I say so is because the grounding of the Sabbath is once again two things. One, creation, okay? Before there was an Israel, before there was a law, before there was a covenant, there was a Sabbath. God created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested, okay? So there's something about who God is that bleeds right into this concept of Sabbath. And then second, although we were not slaves in Egypt, we were clearly slaves. And we were clearly brought out of this. In fact, Jesus uh, himself, on the Mount of Transfiguration in the book of Luke, his disciples see him transfigured, bright and shining, speaking with Moses, this Moses, and Elijah, the prophet. And Luke tells us that they were speaking about his, and in English translations it usually says, departure. But the Greek word that's used there is exodos, it's just a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word for Exodus, okay? He was speaking of what he was about to accomplish and his touch point for what he was about to do is what God did for Israel right here. So the distance isn't as great as we would make it. Even when we get to the New Testament, we find the church generally, first as Jews in Jerusalem gathering on the Sabbath in the synagogue or at the temple in Jerusalem and then over time, we see them gathering on Sunday as Christians because that's the day that Jesus rose. Here's what I would say. 
first off, one of my concerns is that if you don't have a rhythm of Sabbath in your life, you're effectively a six-day creation trying to live on a seven-day cycle. Okay? What I'm saying is that God has designed us to need rest. And you can borrow against that rest all you want, but eventually your body will make you pay it back. Okay? Second, I would say if you can't take a day off, how are you different than a slave? If you can't have a rhythm of rest, and it's only one of seven, it's not a ton, it's not half. If we had to say, is work or rest more important, we'd have to say God designed us to work. But we still need this rhythm of rest, and most of the time, the reason why we don't take a break is because something else has captured our heart. Okay, we find our identity so deeply in our work, or we're so afraid of what will happen if we don't have enough money that we throw all of our weight into it. The Sabbath is a great way for us to say, today I am not needed. To say, I am still dependent on God to provide for me. To say, as important as work is, work isn't all of life, and there are things that I need and things that I'm needed for beyond this. What has changed for us is that the Sabbath is no longer something that is legislated in detailed manner. But the principle of Sabbath, I think, of having a day of rest and a day of keeping it holy, of a day of uh, looking to God, of worshiping God together, I think is still a pretty solid principle. So um, let's move on. Verse 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord God is giving you. So now we've moved on in the bill of others' rights to what we owe our parents. Honor our father and mother. And I want you to keep in mind that the audience he's speaking to is filled with adults. Okay, that this isn't just a command for children, that all of us are called to honor our father and mother. And interestingly enough, this word for honor is the one uh, where we get our word glory. Okay. And so it means to give your parents weight in your life. To give them respect. And it's worth pointing out that as many of us have experienced not all of our parents and none of our parents are always respectful, but not all of our parents are respectable, respectable at all. But the idea here is not built, in, built into their ability or their character or how they're doing at all. It's built into their office. Okay? In fact, notice, notice that here we're actually given, as Paul points out in the book of Ephesians, a promise. It's the only of the ten that's given a promise. Honor your father and mother as the Lord God commanded you so that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so the promise here is so that your days may be long and so you can dwell in the land. Okay, recognize how parenting is supposed to work. Parents effectively train us to stay alive. Okay, that's what they do when we're small children. That's why we need parents, because when we're young, we're dependent and dumb. Okay, we don't know up from down, right from wrong, hot from cold, these types of things. And so a parent's role in our life is to do those things. And in the covenant of Israel, as we'll see even tonight, they have a role to pass on the covenant, to teach who God is. Okay, 
And so the danger that it's speaking of when it says, so that your days may be long and you live in the land is listen to your parents as they teach you the covenant. Okay, that's the idea here. But it's not just listen to them. It's not limited in this way. They are to be honored. Now, here's the way that Jesus applies this. He condemns the religious leaders of his day for specifically, this is what he says, for maintaining the traditions of men when you deny the commandments of God. And this is how he illustrates it. He says, you do this when you take what you owe your parents in their retirement and taking care of them in their old age, and you say, whatever I owed my parents is Corbin, a gift to God. And so what was happening in Jesus' day is some of the religious leaders were going, well, instead of taking care of my parents in their old age, I'm going to take that money, and instead I'm going to give it to the church. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't make any sense. He says, you've created these new traditions and you've forsaken the commandments of God. That's part of what it means to honor our parents. And I think as modern Americans, that's a challenging message to hear because we have a tendency to farm these things out. And I mean, let's be clear. Israel doesn't have any form of social security. There's no pension plan or these types of things. I'm not against those things, but I'm saying here that as Jesus sees it, we as children are of primary responsibility for making sure that our parents are taken care of when they're too old to work, okay? And so here, that's implied in this idea of honor. And then we have some rapid fire ones. The next one is you shall not murder. That one's pretty clearly stated, but what is it recognizing? It's recognizing the fact that other people's lives you can't take with incredulity. That you can't just go, you're not worth living. That you can't say, uh, you know, um, that you can't make the decision whether someone lives or dies. Now, the word used here is the one that was used in numbers for manslaughter, okay? It's not as narrow as our English word murder, but it's not as broad as our English word kill, okay? That's important. And so there's a recognition here of the dignity of human life, or even the sanctity of human life. But it does not remove the realities that we see even in this book of things like capital punishment or war. It's focusing on an individual taking the life of another individual, okay? And it says, that's not to be done. Uh, verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. And so here it talks about um, the, the sanctity of the marriage relationship, that there's a boundary there that's not to be broken. And this is the one that Jesus uses to broaden out our understanding of the ten words. Okay? If we, if we read this as a list of 10 things that if we never do, everything will be fine, then we miss how Jesus sees these 10 words. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who lusts after another person in their heart has committed adultery, okay? And so he deepens it down and he says, it may not end in the physical act of infidelity, it may just have begun in the heart, but it's still on the do not list. It's still part of the reality that's being talked here, uh, pointed to here. When it says you shall not steal, interestingly enough, the Old Testament understands this one as being both a negative, don't take other people's money, and a positive. 
Okay, I'll show you what I mean. Listen to Ezekiel. Like all the prophets, Ezekiel cares about issues of injustice. He says here in chapter 8, verse 17. I bet it's verse 7. Let me check again. Yeah. In chapter 18, verse 7. He says, do not oppress anyone, but restore to the debtor his pledge. Commit no robbery, give his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment. Does not lend an interest or take any profit. Withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between a man and a man. And so here he's talking about the righteous person. But he doesn't see righteousness merely as not stealing and not oppressing, but also righteousness as giving to those who are hungry and fighting against injustice. He's clearly giving an exposition or an explanation of you shall not steal, but he sees it as not enough, not enough to avoid doing evil. He also sees it as a call to doing good. We see the same thing in Job. As Job is defining his character, he says, I am just, and he demonstrates his justice with a roster of things, which includes always giving to those who are hungry and breaking the teeth of the oppressor to to protect the oppressed. Not merely in a negative, but also in a positive. This really shouldn't surprise us because we find the same thing in the New Testament. Listen to the words of Paul. Now, here in Ephesians, he is helping us to understand what righteousness looks like using the metaphor of clothing. And so he talks both about putting off and putting on, okay? He says that we had the old man, and that's who we used to wear, who we used to be, how we used to behave. He says, take that off and instead put on Christ. And in doing so, he illustrates once again from this command on theft. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 28. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Put off stealing, put on sharing. Okay, do you see how those go together? We'll see even as we get into the exposition, the second half of the book of Deuteronomy, that negative and positive drawn out of the 10 words. Uh, The next one given in verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now in general, that just means lying, but when it's put in this language, bear false witness, it's specifically talking about the courtroom, okay? It takes an illustration from where this is the most significant. Lying to your friends about somebody may tarnish their reputation, okay? Lying in the court of law may cost them their life, right? That's what bearing false witness means, but effectively what we see here is that we owe our neighbors honesty on their behalf. Uh, It goes on in verse 21, and we get to the final set of commands here, and it has to do with this idea of coveting, okay? Now, that's not really a word that we use very often in non-religious settings, so we might as well trade it out. The word just means to desire, 
okay? What makes it coveting is that you're desiring something that's not yours, okay? And so listen to what it says, verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's, okay? And so the idea here is that you're not to allow for things like we call envy, okay? Looking at the other side and saying, they have something that I want, and dreaming about it, wishing that it was yours, resenting your neighbor because they have it and you don't, etc. okay? So one of the ways we could provide an opposite of coveting would be contentment, okay? I don't, I don't think that touches all the bases, but the idea here is, once again, even at the heart level, that desiring things that others have and we do not is out of bounds. Now, what's interesting is in Romans chapter 7, Paul tells us that this is the one that broke through his self-righteousness. That the way he was reading the ten words in the entirety of the Old Testament law, he would have said, I'm blameless. I don't do anything that offends God. I am without sin. He says, but then I thought through, you shall not covet, and that's where I saw who I really was. Oftentimes, we can maintain a, um, a religious exterior, but our heart is a different matter. And the 10th the word forces us to look all the way into the heart, forces us to look at not merely what we go through the actions to take, but what we could take if we could get away with it. In Plato's Republic, there's a mention of this old myth called the Ring of Gyges. And Plato's Republic is a big... Uh, a big debate that some friends have asking, asking the question, what is justice? And so after they've thrown out a couple of definitions, one of them goes, but maybe justice just has to do with if you get caught. And so he brings up this idea of the ring of Gyges, which we would just call a ring of invisibility. And he says, does justice really mean anything if you can get away with it? And the, all of the people of the party are forced to say, well, at least in practice, of course it does. How many things would we do that we do not do now because we're afraid we'll get caught, because we're afraid of the consequences, because other people are watching, right? There's lots of things that make us better people than we are that have nothing to do with us and have everything to do with how we will be, retreat, how we will be treated or what we actually deserve or can't get away with, etc. Like that invisible ring, covetousness helps us to recognize it goes into the heart and we have to look at that level. In fact, James says that there's a sense where, uh, well, here, let's do it this way. The very first two commands are focused on making God, God, worshiping only him. Okay? We never, according to Martin Luther and John, uh, uh, John Calvin, we never break any of the rest of the commandments until we've broken the first one. That if we truly worship God, we will not take another life. Because if we take another life, it's because something is so important that that life is worth taking, right? We've elevated something else to the place that only God can be. When we take something, when we steal something, it's because that thing is so important, without it, we can't go on living, right? We've elevated it to being the thing we need. In other words, it becomes an issue of worship. In the same way, covetousness is, is the front door at both ends of the 10 words, we have this front door into all the other things, okay? I mean, I guess we can probably just illustrate that. There is no committing adultery without covetousness. There is no stealing without covetousness. 
But it's even more significant according to the book of James. Listen to what James says in chapter four. This is what he says when he starts chapter four. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here's what he's saying. He's saying any interpersonal conflict you have is because of an internal conflict. He says you fight because you've already lost the civil war within. You've already lost the war in your heart. Something has become so important that now people are either a means to that end or an obstacle to that end, and you no longer treat them as human beings. Okay? But where does he say it begins? With desire and covetousness. And so the ten words in this way are unified and connected. In fact, the first and the last are directly connected by Paul twice. One in Colossians 3.5 and another in its sister letter, Ephesians, when he adds in a list of vices and covetousness, which is idolatry. Bringing things full circle. Okay. So these are the ten words And some have even suggested that these 10 words actually create the structure for books or from chapters 12 through the end of the book. We'll see where that works and where it doesn't work as we move through the book, but it is clear whether it's structural or not that the second half of the book is primarily an application of these things we're reading tonight. But before he gets there, he has other things he wants to do um, and we have to pick up the pace. So verse 22. The word, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice, he added, no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. As soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day, we've seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire would consume, consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and still lived. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord your God will speak to you and we will hear it and do it. Okay, and so notice here, their concern is not a bad concern. They see God for who he is, glorious. They recognize his holiness. They've heard his word and they're committed to keeping it. Okay. But they want Moses to act as a mediator, and God agrees with them. Verse 28, And the Lord heard your words which you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people uh, which they have spoken. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Now we know why Moses is including this little aspect. 
He says, if you're going to survive as Israel, if you're going to thrive, if you're going to keep the covenant, you have to recall the reality of God that lies behind the ten words. Not just the words, but the voice that spoke them. That's the emphasis here. Verse 30, go and say to them, return to your tents, but you, Moses, stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and statutes, the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God commanded you. You'll not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. And so he walks them back through this day to remind them that this is the foundation of God's promises going forward. And then he moves on in chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Okay, remember here, Moses is speaking this aloud to the people, so it's full of repetition and reiteration. He's driving points home. That's why it's keep, that you may fear, so that you will live long in the land. We'll see it more, uh, more than we've already encountered as we continue on. Verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now we get to chapter 6, verse 4, and verses 4 and 5, what's often called the Shema, which is just the Hebrew word for hear, which opens up verse 5, uh, is so significant to uh, Israel's religion, to Judaism, that to this day, most Jews recite these verses every day, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. They see it as the summary, the culmination, the one statement, the Shema, Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So notice two sides there. This is who God is, and this is what you shall do. Okay? And what it says about God is interesting. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's how he chooses to define himself in the Shema. In this big summary of Deuteronomy, it says, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now, the idea here is the same as we saw in the opening two commandments. You will have no other gods before me. You will make no graven images and bow down to them. You will worship me alone. That's what it means here by one. In fact, Zechariah takes this and updates it and tells us God's agenda. So this is what he calls Israel to, but remember that Israel serves a universal purpose. They're a means to the end of all the nations. All the way back with Abraham, God said, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God uses the particular people of Israel for a universal end. So it's no surprise then that Zechariah takes this and looks forward and listen to what he says in Zechariah chapter 14. I always have a hard time finding Zechariah too, don't worry about it. Zechariah 
One of the things we forget when we read our Bibles is that the authors of scriptures are, of the scriptures are also readers of scripture. And it's incredible how often they paraphrase or quote or draw imagery from older books in the Bible. The prophets especially are built on the Pentateuch. When they're calling people to return, return to what? Return to the covenant of Deuteronomy. That's the idea. So notice here what he says in chapter 14, verse 9. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Tell me if it sounds like the Shema. He says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. Do you hear the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And here he says on that day that he witnesses that involves all the nations, God will be king over all the nations and he will be one. It's not that God will change or become one. He is one. We saw that in Deuteronomy. But he will be recognized as one. Now, that's really interesting, but it's got nothing. It's got absolutely nothing on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul, of course, was also a reader of Scripture. But what he does here in chapter 8 is, first off, very appropriate. The concern he has for the church in Corinth is that some of them have decided it's okay to go to temples and engage in uh, meals there, eating food that's sacrificed to idols. And so they're going to feasts where the food is being offered to false gods. Do you see why the Shema would be of interest? This idea that the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one is important. But notice what he does, notice what he does here in verse 5. Okay, chapter 8, verse 5, he says, uh, in fact, verse 4 for context. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there's no God but one, Shema, Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, we, whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now here's what's profound about that. Okay? He, says, he says there are other false gods out there, even if they're not real gods, but for us God is one. He goes back to the Shema, and he says that one God and Father has one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he uses there the same title that Deuteronomy uses for God himself. He takes this one God of the Shema, and he says Jesus is the one God. Now, even when we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we get to a real issue here. It's, okay, so, but we as Christians, like we sang tonight, our God is three in one Doesn't this deny that in the Old Testament? I mean, for starters, just notice that Paul doesn't think so. He quotes it directly and applies it directly to God the Father and God the Son. But it's intriguing that even back here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the word that's used for one is echad, okay? And echad doesn't mean one in the way that we always think it does. Here's other ways that it's used in the Old Testament. When the spies go into the land of Eskel and bring back grapes, they bring a cluster of grapes. That's an akkad, one cluster of grapes. Uh, it's used of Adam and Eve, and the two shall become one flesh, akkad. Okay? Not only that, but in the book of Judges, it's actually used of a crowd. Okay? They came together as one. Okay, and so the emphasis here is one of unity, but that doesn't deny the possibility of the triune. It didn't for Paul. 
So going back to the Shema, so first is this expression of the fact that God is the one God, the true God, the only God, the living God, and then in response to that, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Notice that the response to the one God is defined in the single word love. Okay, You shall love the Lord your God. And then when it says with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, or with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, depending on your translation. It's helpful to understand how these words work here and not how we hear them, okay? When we think of hearts, Valentine's Day, uh, you know, is right around the corner, we generally think of the emotions. But for the Hebrew, in the Bible, the heart is the seat of not just the emotions, but the desires and the will and even the intellect, the mind, okay? It's who you are on the inside, the word for soul, which is the word we would usually use for who you are on the inside, nefesh, that's not a very good summary of what it means, okay? In fact, nefesh can be used of animals, even though we would say that's the difference between humans and animals. Humans have a soul. The, the word here just means a living thing. But the emphasis, uh, the way that it's used is who you are on the inside, okay? And so the heart is your will, your desires, these things. Your nephesh is who you really are, your identity. And then even the word might here is never translated except in this context as might or strength. It actually means your substance. Okay. And so it'd be okay for us to say body. Okay. So your mind, your insides, and your whole body. See how it's moving inside out? But the word goes further than that. Okay. Your substance also involves your substance in your wallet, what you're worth, what you value. Okay. Or, sorry, not what you value, but your resources. This word is really broad. It actually means with, with all you have is a good way to translate it. And so the idea here is from the very center of your personality all the way out into the edges of your influence, you should love the Lord your God. It's a very broad statement of where we should love the Lord our God. And the simple answer is everywhere. It's a merism, okay, where it touches a few places so we understand everything. Other merisms would include heaven and earth, okay? That means everything in between. Um, and so verse 7, uh, sorry, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay, so not only are they to love the Lord their God with their heart, but these words are to be on their heart. And what does that look like? Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Okay, so not only should these words be on their heart, but constantly in their mouth, a regular part of their conversation. The words of the covenant are supposed to be a part of their daily speech with one another. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be for you as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, you may have seen literal interpretation of these things, like the mezuzah. The mezuzah is just usually the Shema, sometimes other passages of Scripture, set in a little box and set on a doorpost of a house, just like it says here. But clearly the emphasis, even if that fulfills it, is not just a decorating tip, right? It's a lifestyle. The idea is everywhere they are, whoever they're with, whatever they're doing, these words are to be a part of the conversation. 
In fact, notice how it continues on in verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great, uh, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards of olive, uh, and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is it to be constantly in their mouth? So that they don't forget. Okay. Now, I think we read that and you go, at first you go, well maybe if we're talking about generations that makes sense. But as we will see, he means that even in the lives of those who are standing now, those who have been fed in the wilderness by the manna, those who have seen, you know, the fire and the smoke at Horeb and heard the very voice of God, those who have followed Moses and seen all of these things, the danger here is that if they don't continue to keep these things in their mouth, to participate, them, uh, participate in them in their conversations, that they will forget. Look at verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. And so here we see where forgetting will get them, or what it will look like practically. It will look, look, look like them turning to idolatry. We're going to come back to this in the chapter to come, so let's uh, keep moving. Verse 16. You'll not put your Lord, your God, to the test as you tested him in Massa. Okay. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and his testimonies and statutes which he commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that, it may, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by the thrusting out of your enemies before you, as the Lord has promised. Okay, and so there's this warning, and on the warning is given a command, obey, keep the covenant, covenant, don't forget God, don't turn away to the left or the right. And then notice this in verse 20, when your son asks you in the time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord God has commanded you? Then you'll say to your son, okay, now notice two things here. First, and we see this a couple of times in the Old Testament, we see a question and answer teaching style. Okay? If you attend this church on Sunday mornings, we regularly do a catechism. A catechism is an arrangement of Christian teaching in summary form in the format of question and answer. The reason we have modern day catechisms is because this is what we see in the Bible. And so the idea here is that the children of Israel would come to their parents and go, why are we like this? Why do we have to do these things? You know, why doesn't my pagan neighbor down the street, uh, why does he get to eat whatever I want? There's a lot of ways that this could work out. But sooner or later, the kids become self-aware of the fact that they're different. And they come to their parents and ask why. And I want you to notice what the parents don't say. Okay. When we get to verse 21, what the parents don't say is because I said so. Right? Why do we have to keep these rules? What's up with the rules and statutes? It's not just because I said so. It's not even because God said so. Instead, look at what they do. The same thing that we saw in the 10 words. You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, 
And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And now the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good. Notice that, for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. And so they're not here merely to pass on the rules. They're to pass on the reality of what God has done, the reality of who God is. Because of who God is and because of what he's done and because of what he's promised, we keep these commands. But they're to teach their children these things. Let's continue on to chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, Okay, and so when he, he says, when you come into the land and you stand against these enemies, and he lists seven of them. Now, there are different lists, and those lists have different tribes than are mentioned or different peoples than are mentioned here. Here, he labels seven, and the reason is because they kind of are stand-in for completion. Okay, seven armies. But what's important, what we need to notice here is how he defines them. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. Okay. The nations are bigger than Israel, and they're stronger than Israel. So when God brings you in and gives the land to you, verse 2, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Now, that's strong words, okay? And this, this phrase, to devote to destruction, uh, we'll learn more about later in the book, but just as a stand-in, consider the city of Jericho. Jericho is the first city that they fight against when they get into the land, and that, the entirety of the bounty, all of it is to be this word, devoted to the Lord, devoted to destruction. And if you remember, a man named Achan goes in, and in the midst of the spoil, he sees just a couple of things that he wants to keep for himself. And because of that, the next battle they have with the little town of Ai goes completely sideways. But that's what this phrase actually means, to devote to destruction, to offer to God, but we read it and it bothers us, and we go, seriously? In fact, notice what it says continuing on. You shall not make any covenant with them, and you will show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, that he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. And so notice there, the reason that's given for all of this is because of the danger of idolatrous influence. Okay. That's the fear. That's the warning. But we look at this and it doesn't change the fact that it still says to devote them all to destruction, to show them no mercy, to make no covenant or treaty with them. And we will have many opportunities, again, to talk about these things, but I wanted to recognize that even if we see this for what it is, a sovereign God 
bringing out a sovereign and patient judgment, we've talked about this before, on the land of Canaan and happening to use the people of Israel to do it. Even if we get there, we still have the struggle. We still go, yeah, but, but that doesn't change the fact that it's just God committing the genocide then and not man. I mean, one thing we should notice here is we cannot come away saying that, uh, that Israel was a strong and powerful people and used God to justify their oppression. Right? That's not in the context. These people are mightier than Israel. They're larger than Israel. That's what makes this so profound. But oftentimes I feel like the problem we have is not with the instrumentality of God using a particular nation to bring judgment on another nation. It's the reality of a judging God at all. That's, that's where we really struggle. And so it's, it's often common to contrast the God of the New Testament as shown in Jesus and this vicious, awful, judgmental God of the Old Testament. And that's a really challenging place to stand. I just wanted to read you a single quote tonight from a Christian thinker by the name of Mirslav Volf. Uh, and if he sounds foreign, it's because he is. He's, he's from the Balkans, from Yugoslavia. Um, and I just wanted to share his words because I think there's some thoughtful things here. This is what he says, thinking about God in terms of wrath and judgment. He says this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty to the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade, in the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead, uh, instead of affirming the... Uh, oh, hard sentence, just a second. By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness... Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that, it, that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because of love. Now, one of the challenges we have in the modern day world is we go, yeah, but pragmatically, doesn't that just justify violence? Even when we look at Jesus, he's one who, you know, was striked and did not strike in return. Isn't nonviolence something we believe in as Christians? And Wolf goes on in another book and he talks about this. And this is what he says. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. It'll be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence 
results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. He basically says here, we believe often in a wrathless God because we live in a safe suburbia. We don't actually see the horrors and the atrocities of life. And so we're kept distant from the proper and right anger about the evil in our world. I know those things aren't going to resolve all of your questions, and I think the questions we ask are important, because if God is not who he says he is, and if his character is not worthy of worship, then we have a serious problem on our hand. But I did want to share that with you tonight just for the sake of broadening the possibilities, because because it's at least possible that we say, well, I... I imagine that God is always loving and never harms and there's no wrath or judgment and all we have left is an imaginary God. But let's continue on. The emphasis in this passage is not on destruction but on the people of Israel. So verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Notice that. And so he says, the reason I'm giving you the land, the reason I've come and revealed myself to you, the reason why I've given you the covenant is not because you were so great or so wonderful. That's not why I love you. And then we go, okay, well, why does he love you? And what does he say? Because the Lord loved you. The foundation of Israel's relationship with God is totally based on God's loving and sovereign choice. That's all there is to it. There's nothing behind it. There's no qualifications that are given here. And so he says, it's because the Lord loves you, he's keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Do you hear how all of the language of the 10 words keeps coming out in what he's saying? That's intentional. He's unpacking it for them. And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You should therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. I want to see if we can make through. In the, yeah, we can do that in 12 minutes. Verse 12. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and steadfast love that he swore your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds, your young flock in the land that he swore your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among all your livestock. And so here he's contrasting and he says, if you follow in the, land, or in the way of the Canaanites, you will find the conclusion of the Canaanites. But if you follow me, it's not just I will leave you alone, it's I will bless you abundantly in all of these ways. Now here's what you can't see in the English that's really interesting in this passage. When he talks here about the fruit of the ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, he doesn't use any of his normal words for those things. 
There's a word that's always used for oil. It's not the one used here. There's a word that's always used for wine. It's not the one Moses uses here. Why does he use all of these odd words in this place? It's because every one of them reminds us of a Canaanite god. They're all words that sound like the names of Canaanite gods. What you have to understand about the religion of the Canaanites is that it was fertility religion. The gods gave them produce. The gods gave them children. The gods were the ones you had to deal with if you wanted these blessings. And Moses is hammering hard here that those things will not be found given by the pagan gods, but that God gives them in obedience to him. Verse 15, the Lord your God will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew will he afflict on you but he'll lay them on all those who hate you and you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart these nations are greater than I, how can I depossess them? You shall not be afraid of them but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. And so he says, going in, don't be afraid of what's coming, but remember what God has done in the past. Verse 19, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the people whom you're afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. So the first reason he says not to be afraid is past victories. The second reason he says not to be afraid is present reality. I'm with you. I'll fight for you. And then verse 22, the Lord your God uh, will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they're destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. Their carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that's in them or take it for yourself lest you be ensnared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. I am so impressed with the psychology of that statement. You hear what he says there? He says, don't even keep the metal that the idols are made out of, lest it become a snare to you. And the reason why that strikes me as being psychologically profound is because I've seen it in my own life and in the lives of others that we, we justify something and we say, oh, that's not going to harm me. I can keep it around. It's no big deal. I don't really believe in all that stuff anyways. And then it sits there, and it sits there, and then suddenly it's not sitting there anymore. Our ability to misjudge our vulnerability is just off the charts. And so he tells them right up front, don't think, oh, we'll just melt it down, and you know, I'll, I'll take it behind the shed, and we'll get rid of it. It's not a big deal. He says, he says effectively, and this is something we should get from this chapter if we get anything, that God knows the danger better than we do. And so it's ironic here because they're saying we're too weak to fight the enemies and we're too strong to be tempted. That's the concern. And he actually goes, no, 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 because I'm with you. You're strong enough to take out the enemies, but you're too weak to be tempted. If we learn anything from the scriptures, it's that the greatest threat in your life is not one outside, but inside. And so he finishes here. He says, verse 26, you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become 
uh, and become devoted to destruction like it. That's the same phrase from the beginning. If they become like the Canaanites, then we, they will share their fate. And that's another thing to point about God here. God is totally just. This isn't racial. He doesn't have it out for the Canaanites. The wickedness of their religion is, uh, is equal opportunity. And it will fall on Israel as well. You shall utterly detest and abhor it because it's devoted to destruction. We'll have to close there for tonight because I don't want to rush through chapter 8. It's a good one. Um, but let's, let's just finish in, in recognizing this. That what Moses is doing here is laying out the covenant. And that covenant begins with the free, loving choice of God and his action on behalf of Israel. And then an invitation into the promises of God, which come with stipulations. But as was pointed out right in the middle of chapter 7, those stipulations are, quote, for your good. There's uh, a song that we sing every once in a while, and it says this. It says, to see the law of God fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, will turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. The recognition is that when we see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and that we no longer have to keep the rules, that that's not how we get in God's good favor, good favor that he freely offers his favor, then it changes us from being burdened like a slave is to the full inheritance of a child, but it also changes duty into choice. For the Christian, obeying God is not a have to. And that's true, but that's not the whole truth. The whole truth is now it's a get to. Now it's something that we willingly and freely enter into because we know that the God who commanded these things is the God of Jesus Christ. The God who loves us so much that he died for us. The God who demonstrated our best interest in mind when we didn't have our best interest in mind and stood against the one God who could save us. And so, it, just to repeat it, and then we'll pray. To see that, to see the law in Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, will turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. Father, my prayer tonight is very simple. It's that that would be the case in our lives. That we would not forget our exodus, Lord, how you brought us out of the slavery to our sin and the consequences of our sin. And so when you call us to obey, you do it in our best interest and we are freed up. Anyone who the sun sets free is free indeed, but we're free not as a cover for our own licentiousness, Lord, but free to love the God who loves us. Please continue the work that you began in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.